Welcome to Made Not Born, a podcast about learning to lead for creativity. I'm your host, Alison Chadwick. I coach talented people to help them become true modern leaders. Because the best creative leaders are mostly made, not born. They work out how to get the best from others through a sometimes messy but always fascinating journey of highs, lows and lessons. And this podcast is all about exploring that made not born journey. About seeing that leadership is something you can learn and picking up a little wisdom about how. I'm talking to some inspiring leaders with great stories to tell, inviting them to share what they've learned about leading for creativity from their own successes and their struggles, and what they're still learning now. So let's talk about leading for creativity with my guest today, Peter Souter. Peter is chairman of communications agency TBWA London, as well as an award-winning writer for stage, screen and radio. And his career is an inspiring story of creative talent, serial achievement and boundless energy. Peter started out as an advertising copywriter, forging a hugely successful career at Delaney Fletcher, WCRS, and then AMV BBDO. Marked out for leadership at a young age, he became Executive Creative Director of AMV, then the biggest agency in the UK, in 1997, taking over from the legendary David Abbott. Filling those shoes in impressive style, among other achievements at AMV, Peter co-founded the Make Poverty History campaign, served as president of DNAD, and helped make AMV the most awarded agency in the world. Too talented and energetic not to turn his hand to other things, though, Peter took a four-year break from advertising, in which he wrote a romantic comedy series for ITV called Married Single Other, penned nine plays for Radio 4, a Christmas short for Sky, and a West End play called Hello Goodbye. Returning to advertising in 2012 to lead TBWA London, Peter now pursues both paths simultaneously, because why have one successful career when you could have two? And is currently co-writing a feature-length animation for Netflix with Richard Curtis, all of which makes him sound very fancy indeed, and he is. But the Peter I know is just a great friend and longtime colleague who I've seen grow into one of the kindest and wisest creative leaders you'll ever meet. He's also one of the most generous, somehow finding the time to be an honorary professor at Central St. Martins and also mentor many rising creative leaders who I know are hugely inspired by him. So as an inspiring leader who also helps others learn to lead, he's obviously a perfect guest for this podcast. So I've taken ruthless advantage of our friendship to persuade him to come and share his wisdom today. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. And you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to that guy. He sounds much more impressive than the truth. (laughs) I know. He really does, actually, doesn't he? (laughs) No, I'm really excited about having this chat with you today. So tell me where it all started. Let's go right back to the beginning and talk about the milestones that led to all of this success for you. Where did it start? I am a writer by trade. So, um, but it's slightly weird. I went into art college. And I, was, I remember having a fantastic tutor who told me that, that I was a copywriter and I thought copywriter was the guy who stamped C in the corner of stuff. So I was slightly insulted. And then at the risk of sounding like I'm a you know, storyteller by profession, so stop me if it sounds too romanticised. But I went to the Westminster City Library and looked at the advertising books and everything that I liked was written by the same guy or people who worked for this guy, this guy David Abbott. And in his ads, people were kind to each other and they bought each other presents on Father's Day and they bought posh food at Sainsbury's so their kids grew up you know, healthy and they drove a Volvo so they didn't die in a car crash and they read The Economist so that they will be clever. And I can't pretend that my life was decided from that moment, but pretty close, really. So then I started stalking him. <laughs> 
<laughs> you started actually stalking him. Yeah, it seems to be best to be direct, I think. So um, <laughs> he was my great hero. Uh, it took me six years. For, for anybody listening who's interested in a career arc and, you know, maybe struggling at the beginning, I was rubbish for about six years, but um, did just enough good work to eventually be offered a job at Abbot Mead. And then... You know, much too soon for me, seven years later when David retired, he gave me his job, which is terrifying. <laughs> so that's that started my journey towards working with you. So I realised after about six months that I was drowning. We were doing okay as a company, but I personally felt wildly out of my depth. I remember seeing a advert, an advert for the IPA Crazy Directors course. So I went to Andrew Robertson, who was my CEO and partner at the time, and said, Andrew, I really fancy going on this. And he said to me, and I always remember this, he said to me, why are you going on that? You should be teaching on it. And it was so far away from how I felt. I felt uh, lost and alone and, you know, sort of powerless and outgunned by the job that I'd been given. And my partner didn't know. My partner, you know, he's amazing, amazing human being, Andrew. I'd covered it up enough to fool him. But I was completely desperate. So I went off at that point to the IPA course and I met a lady called Kate Springford, who I know is a friend and an inspiration for you Yeah, too. wonderful, wonderful woman. I don't know, we just started doing things like Myers-Briggs and I, and I was just knocked out to hear that you didn't have to try and make it up on your own. You know, that there were things that coaches could teach you. So I've been coached my whole life, professional life, half by Kate and then I began working with you I sort of tricked you into working with me by saying come and teach my agency but I attended almost every session that you did just to try and learn myself so it's brilliant to hear already so early in this podcast how coaching has helped you and I'd love to come back to that actually a bit later and talk a bit more about how that's helped you but Peter I'd love to just kind of go back a little bit to what you were saying there about how you felt because I think it's hugely helpful and inspiring for you know a really successful creative leader like you to say you know what early on I really didn't think I could do it because I think that's such a common feeling that feeling of being a bit of an imposter and I think sometimes rising creative leaders look at successful creative leaders and think well they've got their shit together you know, they've probably always been fine. And it's very coachable. And I work with it a lot in coaching, but it starts with having the courage to see it in yourself and then ask for help. So how hard was it to go to Andrew and say, I need help? What do you think it took in you to make that step? Well, oddly, that wasn't hard. Not only did I have concerns at the beginning, I've had them throughout my career. I think if you're a creative person and you don't have a really powerful and articulate inner critic, then you're probably not for real. You know, the, the weird thing about our job is that you have to be self-critical. Otherwise, you're just satisfied with the first idea that you think of. So it's built in and it's not terribly helpful when you have to pretend to be the leader. So oddly, the thing with a Andrew, the reason why I think that story is important is I didn't feel embarrassed or frightened. I just felt desperate. I, I felt that if he thought that I needed no coaching, I wasn't going to make it to the end of the year. So actually, oddly, my salvation has been a couple of times in my career. My weakness is my strength. So I'm not prepared to pretend that I know something when I don't. The thing that I've learned, you know, working with you is to say, what do you think is actually the most powerful thing you can say to your colleagues? So I've always been very open about getting coaching, needing it, sharing anything I've learned with anyone who'll listen. You know, I don't think it's a private thing. I don't think it's a, a admission of weakness. I think um, asking for help is an admission of strength. 
you know, that you want to be better. Anything that I've done that's been, you know, reasonably successful has been by uh, being as open as I can be about my shortcomings and asking for help and giving other people room to shine, I think, is another reason why being open about your shortcomings is kind of a superpower I think absolutely I mean I love what you're saying there about it's a sign of strength not a sign of weakness to ask for help I think that's just such again such a helpful thing to put out there into the world asking for coaching shows that you're strong enough to admit that you're still learning which is a great attitude for a modern leader all the best leaders know that they're not fully baked ever you know and that they're always learning and getting a coach is not a sign of weakness as you say it's a sign of strength so you dug in you learned how to do it you got some coaching and you were then enormously successful as a creative leader at AMV, you know, you took the agency to becoming, you know, was already very successful, but you took it to becoming the most awarded agency in the world. You were captain of the ship at some amazing times with amazing work. When you look back to that time, what do you think you started to really learn? I mean, for example, you just said you've got to let other people shine and it might be good to pick that up in the conversation. What do you think you started to really learn about how to create that success around you? Well, this is not false modesty. I have the secret for anybody who wants it. Be a fan. If you are a fan of other creative people, and I use that in the broadest possible sense, but if you are a fan of great colleagues, then you'll hire them. You'll dare to hire people who are better than me. My basic technique, there used to be this thing called the gun report where they just totted up all the awards and you know business that you won in a particular year. And just one year, quite a long time ago, we were calculated to be the best agency in the world. And that was because I worked with people like Tom Carty and Walter Campbell, um, Nick Worthington, Paul Brazier, Sean Doyle, Dave Dye, these names, if they mean nothing to you, it doesn't matter. Or, or they were just the stars and they were all better than me, right? They were all better writers or art directors or concept creators than I was. The only skill I brought to the party was I was a huge fan of them and I hope that I gave them space to do the best work of their careers. So yeah, be a fan. That's my hot tip. Get a coach, be a fan. That's just so great. And I think one of the things I'd love to just underline there, when you were talking about being a fan, you know, what it made me really think about is, and I've seen you do this very much in your leadership and also talk about it. I've heard you talk about how leadership is altruism, you know, that you have to take a step back and let it be about other people. And I'd love to hear, you know, more about what you think about that, because I do think it's absolutely at the heart of modern creative leadership. So what do you mean when you say leadership is a kind of altruism? It's one of the reasons why early on in their careers, a lot of creative leaders are tripped up because to be a successful copywriter and art director, and I suspect director and any other thing that you can you know, largely categorize as creative, you have to be very selfish. It's about your work being better than the person in the next office, in the next building, in the next country, about you being the best and everyone else dying in the dirt. And management leadership is the opposite. Leadership is about creating the space where other people can do well. And to learn that sort of weird judo throw on yourself, it's the opposite skill. It's like being really good at football and then asking somebody to be an Olympic standard basketball player. It's vaguely related, but not really. You know, it's a different skill. And, and I think because here's what happens to a lot of creative people, if you don't mind my saying, you're quite good at the job itself. And then somebody promotes you, shoves you in there, and you've got six months to succeed or die. You know, people get fired really easily in our business. I choose the middle one, you know, neither, you know, don't try and limp by on your natural talent, but get some help so that you can learn the new job. So for me, all management is altruism, all management is giving it away so someone else can shine. And that's your opportunity ultimately to shine, because if the people who work for you sprint to work 
feel empowered to be their best and bravest self when they get there and go home thinking they've done something meaningful and useful, then you've got a company. You know, then you've got people fighting to work with you rather than for you. One of the things that I often say to creative leaders when I'm coaching them through this, what did you call it? A judo throw on yourself. That's so great. When I'm coaching them on that is when you become a leader, you need to sort of learn to become the frame, not the picture. Yeah. Ooh, good yeah. one. Yeah. Well, Can I say that? because... Yeah. I think you need to learn to be the frame, not the picture. <laughs> so good, Alison. <laughs> but you know what's hard is that, as, just as you're saying, a lot of creatives find it really difficult. You know, not because they don't want others to succeed, but as you say, because they've absolutely been brought up to be the picture. And so, again, I think part of my work with creatives becoming creative leaders is helping them see the beauty of the frame, you know, the value of the frame and how it's such a wonderful thing when you do learn to get the best out of others and become what one person talked about creative leadership as being like a social architect now, you know, being like the host of a party where you bring diverse talent together and create that setting for them to thrive. And that's a different kind of creativity, isn't it? And actually, that makes me want to go back to you mentioned Myers-Briggs a little bit earlier in the conversation when you were talking about going on the IPA course and you said when you did Myers-Briggs. And I think I quite like to pull that in because, you know, one of the challenges, I guess, of being that sort of party host, that frame, not the picture, is that you then look around and you've got a diverse bunch of people and you are then trying to get the best out of all of them. It would be great to hear what you've learned, Pete, over the years about how to do that, you know, how to get the best out of different people and maybe, yeah, how Myers-Briggs has helped with that. I was introduced to Myers-Briggs very early in my leadership career and what was really great is at that moment before I was trying to lead everybody the way that I like to be led so I am um, what we call in the trade an ENFP as is uh, Al I think and we like people to say that they love us <laughs> and, and I was leading a lot of very introverted creatives who wanted me to say yes that's a good script we should make it you know, so I was all over them slobbering on their designer uh, suits and they didn't, they didn't really want that. And what Myers-Briggs taught me, it tells you a bit more about your own preferences. It tells you what you want. And then if you're thick like me, it makes you realise that, ah, um, people are different. And the great thing about learning what leadership is really about, which is being aware of who you're working with and adapting to what they want as opposed to what you want, it really pays if you understand that there are different people. So Myers-Briggs, you know, first of all, they, um, for those that don't know, it's, you know, wonderful Jungian type indicator. But the first thing you get once you filled in the long dreary form, I'm sure the long form is um, a trick that makes you so bored you stop lying. Yeah, that's right. You reveal yourself through this uh, multiple choice thing. And then they hand you a bit of paper, a piece of A4 paper that is so spooky because it's just you. It's a description of all your superpowers and a little a gentle mention of your various kryptonites. And you look at it, I, you know, I entered into it very skeptically. I thought, how can you categorize everyone in the world in 16, you know, 16 boxes? Ridiculous. And then this thing came out and it's as if somebody had been watching me and writing it down in very friendly, you know, slightly scientific language. You go, that, that's me, that's me, that's me. Oh, that's me as well. And first of all, it, it was kind of spooky. And then it was a total liberation because you go, oh, I'm that person. That's why I can't concentrate for long. That's why I need people to keep you know uh, a, a written document short or I'm not going to read it and it just kind of revealed all these things about myself and then the really fun bit is it introduced me to a world where you when you meet somebody new you try and work out who the hell they are <laughs> you know look for signs of what kind of person they are and the way that they like to receive an information 
as a professional storyteller, you know, the first thing you have to do is work out what your audience wants. And, the, you know, in my other career, there's a guy called Bill Goldman, wonderful screenwriter who died last year. Uh, and his thing is give the audience what they want, but not in the way that they expect. But for me, what I learned was to enjoy the puzzle of solving who someone was so that I can better serve them as their boss or their partner or their colleague or the person that I was serving in a client perspective. You know, I'm a Myers-Briggs practitioner and I've used it for many years and I do find it a fantastic tool just in the way that you say. I think two things I think that are particularly useful for me as a coach about it and again going back to helping leaders kind of find their confidence, bust through that imposter syndrome and then also lead diverse groups of people. I think one of the things that can be really helpful for is as you say, you know, you see your superpowers written on a page. And one of the things I'm passionate about as a coach is helping people see that they can be themselves, you know, with a few skills, with a bit of flexibility, but that they can be themselves. And I think there are lots of other tools apart from Myers-Briggs that help with that. But anything that helps you kind of raise your self-awareness about what you're really great at helps you kind of own those things, I think. But also, as you say, it helps you rather than be threatened by difference. It helps you find difference fascinating. As you know, one of the things I always say about it is it helps you take the heat out of difference. And leadership is stressful enough without looking around you at the people who are different from you and finding that stressful, right? Well, both things. I think it also helps you find the joy in difference. You know, it helps you enjoy working with different people and think that it's cool that they're not like you and they can do things that you can't. I think for me, from a leadership perspective, you and I were running a virtual program just a couple of weeks ago with young creative leaders inside TBWA. And kind of amazing thing happened to me. This is going to sound self-aggrandizing. I promise you that's not my intent. But early on in the program, we were sort of coaching them together and I, I was being the way that I am. And there was this sort of slightly quiet, slightly grumpy looking guy. And then at the end of the program, he was very incredibly sweet, as everybody is when they come on the program and they work with you and they you know, get this understanding of themselves. One of the things it gives them is the confidence to recognize that their way of being can be a way of being a leader and that there isn't one way. And this guy said to me, when the program started, I looked at you and I'm sort of, you know, noisy and chatty. And he said, oh, that's, you know, that's what a leader is supposed to be like. And what I've learned over the course is there isn't one way of being it. And, and my way of doing it might work. And I was so moved by that, not because he thought that I sounded like a leader at the beginning, but because he thought I didn't sound like a leader at the end. That, 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 but by the end, he'd realized that there were a hundred different ways that you can lead people if you have the confidence to draw on your own superpowers and kind of ignore your kryptonites and just be be happy and confident in the way that you are and let other people shine. So that, that, that to me was, um, you know, massively set up by the way you had constructed the course. But that guy went on a bit of a journey from thinking that he'd been given his job by mistake, as a lot of us feel, and getting towards the point where maybe he hadn't, maybe it was a good idea that he was a leader. Maybe he had certain things that he could do that I could never do, for example. And I found that's really moving, actually, at the risk of sounding, you know, like a, um, somebody from the Waltons. I thought, oh, that's <laughs> great. That guy is going to go off and do well, I think. That's such a great story. And I couldn't agree more about, you know, this sense that you don't have to be one type that we can lead and coach diversely talented creative people up into leadership, I think is such an important lesson. And I'm so happy if people listen to this podcast and think, oh, I'm not like my boss, but maybe I could still be a good leader. I think that's just a great takeout. While we're just thinking about what you've achieved, I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but I'd love to stay just with the kind of AMV journey for a minute. You're so successful there, much to be proud of. Is there anything you wish you'd done differently though? I mean, any regrets when you look back? 
Oh, yes, lots. Um, sort of 98% regrets, I think. But it's interesting you talk about diversity because that we were talking about that in the sense of neurodiversity, people whose minds work in different ways. I really wish now, and it's, you know, it's easy after the event, but I wish that in 1997, Tony Blair and I started on the same day. I wish that I'd said, gone really public and just said, my aim is to make my creative department as diverse as the population it serves. So it's still not true, but big strides are being made in TBWA. But if clients ever really realised how undiverse creative departments are, they go mental. Basically, half of any creative department should be made up of women. There should be a reflection of whatever you're, you know, I'm interested in the population because obviously we work with all these different countries around the world where diversity can mean different things. But if you're writing for a, a community, a population, your creative department should reflect that. So if you have, you know, 10% of the population is uh, people of colour, that's what should be in your department. And I really wish I'd set my stall out and said, we're going to try in the next five years. You should never set a goal and a date in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I wish I'd said, we're going to try and have a department which is properly diverse, not tokenistic. There should be more women. If you take out cars and financial products, women make over 75% of all purchasing decisions. They may not pay, but they decide. And, you know, we were massively male. You know, had some success in that, turning those numbers around. We were massively wholly white. There was no disability. There were no people of colour. It's a long journey from a, a very sort of squeaky white, mostly male population to what I hope we're getting towards now. And that would have been really cool. So that's my big regret, actually, of just not... I was sort of slightly aware of it. I did try to get more women in the department straight away, but I wasn't fully aware. I'm really loath to say the word, but I wasn't fully aware of how much more diverse we could have been. So I'm going to just move things forward on your journey a bit now because you've achieved so much and we need to try and cram it all into this little podcast. All of those talents and skills that you evolved over the years helped you lead really successfully. And yet then at the height of your powers, you decided to leave and pursue a full time career in writing which, you know, writing for screen and stage. Yeah, spe- speaking of mistakes, <laughs> I, I, left, I left a really well-paid, totally secure job at the very top of advertising and became a grubbing screenwriter earning bugger all. <laughs> well, I was not going to say that, but yeah, because you've been really successful, as I said in my intro. I mean, not many people get their very first TV series commissioned by ITV. So you have been really successful. But tell me about that big change. Why did you decide to leave? Having told you a story of a a lack of confidence, I'll tell you a story of overconfidence. Well, you know who Tex Avery is, for the listener. So Tex Avery is the animator who invented running off a cliff and not falling until you look down. (laughs) And that was very much me. So I, one Christmas, I got really bad flu. I had that kind of flu where you're like sick from the neck down, but my brain was fine. So I wrote a radio play, you know, like you do. I just sat and bashed it out in two days. And because I am an advertising person, I did the advertising thing was, you know, I just Googled who the head of drama at Radio 4 was. Got the wrong guy, incidentally, but took him out for dinner. He was very happy to have a free lunch. And the first play I wrote got commissioned. And the second one I wrote won the Tenniswood Award for Best Play of the Year. And so I thought I was great. <laughs> so I blithely bashed off a TV series. I got an amazing agent called Anthony Jones, who looks after, this is funny, looks after Rich Curtis, Alan Bennett, 
Tom Stoppard and me. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good company to be. No, I'm like his pet rat. Do you know what I mean? In a little cage in the corner. But um, I got an amazing agent. He sent me off to see Andy Harris, who produced The Queen and now produces The Crown. Andy was not really paying attention when I pitched my idea to him. But at the end, I said, by the way, I work in advertising, pretty well paid. You don't have to pay me to do this. I'll just do it for a laugh. And, and then his eyes lit up, you know, because free content was uh, was his Viagra. So I wrote this show. And again, Andy and I went into ITV and, you know, his name got me in the door. And I did the pitch. He didn't say a word. But I pitched it like we would pitch, you know, like an advertising pitch. I had these lovely boards made up by the studio and got the gig. You know, they commissioned a show. <laughs> I'd literally never written more than 60 seconds worth of TV and suddenly I had to write six hours. And my show, which viewers, you can buy on Amazon. I think they practically pay you now. I think it's like one forty-nine. last time I looked. <laughs> and yeah, and so that got made. And then I, uh, I in the Tex Avery style, I made the mistake of looking down. <laughs> and fell all the way to the ground. So I uh, was determined that my lead character would die at the end of the series for dramatic uh, reasons, which I stick by, incidentally. But of course, if you kill your lead character, Lucy Davis, in this case, from The Office, then they don't recommission you. <laughs> so you just get the one series. But it's a, I'm very proud of it. It's a lovely single series show. Mary Singalala. You know, you're being so modest. <laughs> and I mean, you're being very funny and very modest about what happened. And, you know, I do I remember those times and um, being your friend through them. But I also know that you, you have been really successful. And here you are now writing a feature length animation for Netflix with Richard Curtis. So you have stayed in that world. We'll, we'll come back to your move back into advertising in a minute. This is a podcast about learning to lead for creativity. And one of the things I'm really interested about is in the time that you've been playing and working in that world as well as in advertising what do you think you've learned about leading because you are a natural leader you know you're charismatic you have followership you take people with you but you had a different kind of status in that world you know you didn't necessarily have the title so you had influence and you had superpowers how have you found leading well, that's a great question because it's well very reassuring for all of your listeners who are in marketing communications because I didn't meet a single person in the screen film and TV world who I thought was better than advertising people. I think we're smart and funny and quick and silly and creative. And actually what I learned was same skills apply, right? So the salesmanship, I didn't have power in that first meeting with ITV, but I did have experience. And they'd actually never seen a, a show plotted out visually before, you know, because most writers are or wordy based. So there's that. Try your existing skills in a new area. You never know they might work. And the, the, I, and the be a fan thing, the thing I'm writing now with Richard is, you know, it's basically because he's an incredibly generous person. But I did work very hard on our working relationship. You know, I worked on campaigns with Richard for nearly 25 years all for nothing, all because I thought it was the right thing to do. But one day he turned around and said, do you want to collaborate on this thing? And now we're making a $50 million Netflix animation, which is kind of cool. I'm, I'm, the analogy I have in my head is I'm like Usain Bolt's left shoe. I am, in theory, <laughs> participating in the 100 metres, but it's not really down to me. <laughs> so Richard uh, is the rest of Usain Bolt, which is why we got commission straight away and given a shit ton of money but yeah I'm hoping I'm trying to hold up my end of the deal um but it's the same thing so I was a fan of David Abbott I got to know David I, I want worked for him I would have worked as a junior copywriter my whole life just to be near him and learn from him and in a sense Rich is the same you know he's a, 
is so much to admire. His movies have taken $4 billion at the box office and he has raised a further billion dollars with a B to help people who have nothing, you know, through comic relief and make poverty history and other campaigns. So, you know, there's a role model for you. Stand next to somebody great and a bit of their magic dust will rub off on you and make you less shit. <laughs> is my other hot tip for the youngsters. <laughs> I think one of the things that really comes through you know, listening to you talk about your career is the kind of enthusiasm, the enthusiasm for great people like Richard or like David, but for the kind of magic of creativity and getting to do cool stuff as well. How important do you think it is to bring that energy and enthusiasm to leadership if you're trying to get other people to feel that way as well? Well, I'll, I'll make very few claims for myself. There are better writers, there are better leaders. The thing that I have in spades is genuine admiration for my colleagues. You know, I think they're great I think that Nick Worthington, who for a while worked with me, is the best creative, I think. Walter Campbell is the best TV person. Paul Belford and Dave Dye, you know, nobody makes the world look like they do. The thing that I have in common with my attitude to, you know, these people, and, and again, it doesn't really matter if anybody in the podcast knows any of these people. It's just people who are so obviously brilliant at what they do. I'm just drawn to them like a moth to a flame. Why don't moths come out during the day, by the way, if they like light so much? But I'm drawn to them magnetically. And I try to treat those people with respect and admiration that they can feel, you know, oozing out of my pores. Um, and it's hard, I think, to hang around with somebody who admires you and not enjoy it a bit, you know, is my, you know, to be someone's boss and to have them feel like you think that they're better than you are is not a bad trick. It's not a trick in my case, because I genuinely feel that. But to make people feel that they're in the right place, to make people feel that they are in the place where they're going to do the work that they'll remember all their lives, that they're free to do their best work, that somebody trusts them to go and be the dog, not, you know, be barked for, is so powerful. I cannot, cannot, cannot recommend highly enough being that person, being the person who oozes goodwill towards the people that work for you to let them feel that they're in the right place. I'm talking so much with leaders at the moment about what great leadership looks like now, you know, coming out of the pandemic. And we'll come back to the pandemic maybe in a, in a minute. And one of the things that I'm talking so much about is, you know, behaviours like trying to inspire people rather than command them to really lift their spirits with a sense of, come on, we can achieve great things, even in crazy, uncertain times. The role of the leader, I think, to really inspire, it doesn't mean you have to do it by example, by doing the work yourself, as we've discussed, you know, it's about creating space for other people to shine. But I do think that energy and the inspiration that a leader brings, even in really tough times, maybe especially in really tough times, is such a powerful part of what helps people find their energy and find their motivation and want to show up well for you if you as you say if you make them feel that it's so important I think well speaking of being a fan Alison Chadwick I took the trouble to listen to all previous seven episodes of this I'm very insulted that I've come so late in the day <laughs> but anyway when you finally got around to me so I listened to all of them and if I could be momentarily critical of my fellow guests all of whom are amazing but not enough of them mentioned that you have coached them. And I think that's a really important thing to say, not just, you know, not everybody in the world can work with you, I guess, but getting a coach and listening to them is an incredibly key part of learning to be a great leader. Uh, the great disappointment for me when I was made the boss very suddenly at a very early age was to discover that you can't make anybody do anything. 
<laughs> you can't make people think of a great idea. You can only create an environment where they want to. And you know, that that was news to me. And I think it's news to a lot of people that when being the boss was invented, it was about being very shouty in a factory, a bunch of men, you know, and actually now speaking as a, as a very girly man, you know, um, the attributes are so much more feminine. They're so much more enlightened. It's about creating an environment, about giving away power so other people can assume, be their best selves and, and feel that, they, that the people around them are rooting for them, dying for them to do great work. So I'm officially scolding my fellow podcast guests on Made Not Born because not enough of them uh, mentioned that the reason that they're good is because you taught them all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You're very, very kind to say that. I am going to qualify it by saying some of the podcast guests have been coached by me, but actually not all of them. You know me, I like to be behind the scenes. So Pete, talking about working with me and, and my coaching, after several years, you were enticed back into the advertising industry, taking the helm at TBWA London in 2012. And you soon had me on speed dial to come in and do some work with you, which was very kind. And I've enjoyed it very much. So what lured you back in? And what did your leadership need to look like there? Well, I miss uh, the people. I mean, you know, it's, it's certainly true that the money is a bit better in advertising that isn't screenwriting but still I, I what I really miss to be a screenwriter is to sit on your own in your pajamas way before lockdown I was living the lockdown life introverts need space and uh, extroverts need people and I, and I was drawn back my friend and colleague Andrew Robertson basically put the word in for me and I've worked for Omnicom all my life god bless them they sound like the most evil company in any James Bond film but they are in fact incredibly benign holding company that looks after various creative brands including TBWA so TBWA is AMV's sister brand in the UK but I was also drawn back because it was the opportunity to start something really the, the UK office was very small and getting smaller and there was this lovely band of really young um, but not particularly well led or well coached bunch of people um, they were a bit like the minions <laughs> they were lovely and smiley enthusiastic <laughs> and occasionally blew each other up with a misguided <laughs> rocket yeah. or two and it was an opportunity to work with Walter and Sean and Paul again, you know, so I reassembled I reassembled a, a band of old and experienced geniuses, but also I hope brought on some really young people. I knew that everybody in the agency, about 150 people at the time, needed training and about 10% of them needed incredibly detailed one-to-one -one coaching from an expert. And I only really knew one, <laughs> so I phoned you up. There's so many things to say, but... It, Right from the first, I think I did it two weeks in and I told everybody two weeks in and suddenly I think that everybody in the agency felt that they were kind of important enough to get some training and some people felt really important because they got personal coaching and we worked as a team and we worked out, you helped me work out who everybody was and what they needed and what they, you know, where they needed a bit of support and a bit of challenge and it was, you know, for me, a real education in how you can transform an agency really quickly if you're in the mood we went from being they hadn't won a pitch in four years <laughs> when i arrived and then we were number one in the new business league within nine months and we won the biggest prize at creative circle a year after that so you know it was a great time staying with your journey as a leader pete and how you've evolved and grown and started to really give back i guess you know that belief in coaching which still isn't common enough, I think, in, in the creative world, but is 
so much more ingrained now than it used to be, which is wonderful. But I think you've always believed in it, as you've said, and that belief in coaching and also your ability to you know, inspire and mentor others has led you to make that a much bigger part of your leadership now, hasn't it? So when you think about all these rising creative leaders around the world who I know are incredibly grateful for the way that you help them learn and grow and figure out who they are. What advice do you give them? How do you help them, do you think, on their leadership journey? Well, first of all, I should qualify that is, you know, I got old and my knees went and it was easier to coach other people <laughs> than do the job myself. <laughs> so that's part of it. But also, yes, you're right. I mean, I was I really remembered that thing of David Abbott retired on his 60th birthday and literally the next day. I was running the biggest agency in the country. I was 32. I had no idea what I was doing. I was terrified. And because I did a fair impersonation of somebody who wasn't terrified, I didn't get any help. You know, so I've dedicated uh, what is clearly the, um, the arse end of my career <laughs> to trying to make sure that fewer people have that experience. It's so common. It's so common. Every year, you and I do uh, Master Gunners, which is the coaching program in TBWA for young leaders. And we meet 30 new creative directors and their stories are amazingly similar. They were really good at winning prizes, winning business and all that kind of thing. And then one day they're put in charge and they have no idea what the job is until we get our hands on them pretty much. And so it's still going on. You're right. The world is much more orientated towards coaching. But I still think it's often a sort of slightly half-hearted arrangement. People are always saying to me, what if we train these people and they leave? And of course, the, the, the answer is only what if, what if we don't train them and they stay? There's still a long way to go, but you can't expect people to guess what leadership is you know it's just not a thing and especially if, interestingly for creative people because you know on your side of the business uh, when you were in advertising young account people you know after a couple of years you'll get another person working for them a year after that you might get your own account a year after that you might get your own group you're introduced to the world of management slowly with creative people almost exclusively one day you aren't it and the next day you are and, you know, it's usually because the last guy got fired, you know, so he's not even around to give you a bit of advice. So it's a very often a brutal introduction. And my, you know, I have two tricks. I, I like doing it and I try to do it as often as possible by bringing you along. So I don't even have to be that qualified. But you, the way you and I work, which I think, you know, is only relevant to other people in terms of still I'm still asking for help you know 30 years ill in I'm still asking for help when we do the coaching programs together you are qualified and you have read all the books and you have done all the training and you have dealt with hundreds of people in all sorts of industries around the world and I've actually done the job so between us I think that we have quite a good claim to know what we're talking about because you know you worked in our business and you were brilliant a brilliant account person as well but you know we we bring complementary skills and again that's what team building is you know part of a leadership you're never a leader on your own you're also part of a leadership team and trying to make sure that the person next to you is better than you that's my hot tip <laughs> you just said something great there about you know that you just still growing still learning all the time and and just as we get towards the, I'm going to use your phrase, the arse end of this conversation. <laughs> what are you still learning about leading? Because, you know, I said that we'd come back to the pandemic and as tricky a subject and as tricky a time as it's been, it sort of does feel important, I think, to talk about it because for so many leaders, for all leaders, I think it's been incredibly challenging, but also kind of a really fertile time for learning. So is there still anything to learn? The pandemic taught us all something, which is that you have to learn and unlearn. 
the unlearning thing, I, my great friend and an amazing, amazing leader, Dave, David Lubars, who, who runs BBDO and is without doubt the most talented and most enduringly successful creative leader in the world. You know, I got him in to talk to my kids um, in New York and uh, he just said, remember to unlearn as well. You and I say at every program, you know, you've got to learn, 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 learn. But he's really brilliant. What he's done in his career, a real believer in his unlearning as well. You know, two or three times in his career, he's changed the way American advertising works by making it something else. What the pandemic has taught us all is, you know, never assume that you've got it all under control. Never assume that it's never going to change. You know, who would have expected us all to spend a year indoors? You know, the whole goddamn world. So the ability to unlearn, the ability to let go of what worked last week and understand that it may not work this week anymore. So keep alive, keep alive to the change, be interested, be fascinated in anything new. Another great leader, uh, David Colbus, who runs Struggle 5 London. I've only ever bumped into him in a gallery. You know, he's just, he's one of these, the most successful young creative leader in the in the country at the moment, I think. And he's just always out there looking at new music, new art. He, you know, he's just hungry for change. So I would say, you know, learn and unlearn. None of us tied to our current capabilities. You know, learn more and jettison the stuff that isn't working and learn more stuff. Make space for it by unlearning some shit that, that's gone now. And what do you think has been most important to unlearn? Here's the thing. You know, we don't all need to sit in an office together every day and do the same thing that we did yesterday. You know, the thing that I hope, I hope that we remember, you know, there's all sorts of things. I think, and I always thought handshaking was a bit dodgy. You know, where was that person's hand a minute ago? Uh, that's can probably, we can do without. <laughs> Should be like the queen and wear gloves always. <laughs> I'm going to wear a mask on a plane for the rest of my life now, not not least to hide my terror of being on a plane. Kids, I think, have got to go back to school. <laughs> Home, homeschooling, not good. But... Just this idea that we have to do the same thing every day in order to create seems ludicrous to me now. The idea that we that we all have to be in the same space every day, all day, every day for set office hours just seems madness. It's complex though, isn't it? Because I, I couldn't agree with you more. And yet and yet at the same time, of course, the kind of cultural glue that you get by being in place with people, I think is also part of the story, isn't it? So I think it's... I'm not saying never go to work. I'm just not saying, you know, go to work every day for the same amount of time with the same people. Mix it up. Fascinating stuff. I hate to bring this conversation to a close because it's Oh, please don't. So I've got nothing fun. else to do. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my last question. And it is quite a hard question. But if you had to pick one thing to put on a postcard, a very creative, beautifully written postcard, obviously, that you've learned more than anything that seems to matter to unleash creativity around you, what would you put on that postcard, Pete? Well, even if it's a very small postcard, there's enough for a sentence, isn't there, Alison? Does that have to be one there is, thing? Yes, okay, so my say. sentence would be be a fan, get a coach. You know, the fan thing I think is self evident in everything that I've said, I hope. And the get a coach thing is an absolutely sincere response to my personal journey, which is you can't do it on your own. And if you expect yourself to be able to learn, imagine wanting to be a footballer, but never watching a match and never talking to a manager and never having a, you know, a coach. It doesn't happen. In most fields of excellence, and sport's a good one, I, don't, I know nothing about sport, but I know enough to say that there isn't a sport in the world where people don't get coached in order to try and be better. And yet in business, for some reason, a lot of people think they've just got a guess. And if they put their hand up and say, I need help, somebody will chuck them out. It never happens. It never happens. 
Nobody gets fired for curiosity. Nobody gets fired for being fascinated about the process of being better at your job. Be a fan, get a coach. Can I squeeze nobody gets fired for curiosity on there as well? Maybe we could just do like an A4 piece of paper instead of a postcard because I think that really has to go on it as well. Peter, thank you so much. In my introduction to you, I said that I've seen you grow into one of the kindest and wisest creative leaders you'll meet and also one of the most generous. And I think you've just come on this podcast and proven those things in spades. I mean, you've been funny and wise and self-deprecating and generous with your wisdom. And I'm so grateful for you sharing your wisdom today. Thank you so much. That's very kind. That was a fascinating conversation with Peter Souter, screenwriter and chairman of TBWA London. I particularly love what Peter said about how important it is to be a fan, to radiate the kind of energy and enthusiasm that inspires others to achieve great things, and also to hire people better than you and give them space to shine. I also love Peter's point about how important it is to create the conditions for people to feel valued and understood, whoever they are, using your empathy and your curiosity and maybe a few useful tools like Myers-Briggs to be a good leader for everyone, however different they are from you. And finally, of course, I loved the way that Peter talked about the value of coaching in his career and how asking for help as a rising leader and getting a coach is not a sign of weakness, but very much a sign of strength. I hope this episode has maybe given you a little fuel for your own Made Not Born journey, whatever path you're on. If you've enjoyed it, please rate, review, share and subscribe to Made Not Born wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. And finally, if you'd like to know more about my leadership coaching practice, visit growpeople.co.uk. Thanks for listening.